The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's Ben Luke here. Welcome to the latest in our Top of the Pods episodes, in which we're looking back at highlights from the 200 interviews and discussions we've done on the Art Newspaper Podcast over the past two years. I'm recording this in London on a sweltering day. In the UK, following many places in Europe, the US, South Asia and the Middle East this year, temperatures are likely to be the hottest on record. This is now a regular pattern which scientists link directly to anthropogenic climate change. So this week we're focusing on the climate crisis, with two interviews from December 2018 and a more recent one from May 2019. The art world is beginning steadily to take action. On the 17th of July 2019, the directors of the Tate declared a climate emergency and pledged, quote, to respond with actions across all four Tate galleries and at our stores that put this centre stage. This act was in part inspired by the artist Olufer Eliasson, whose retrospective exhibition at Tate Modern opened earlier in July. The Tate praised Eliasson's ethical commitment to addressing environmental issues, and an event with hundreds of artists, campaigners, communities and arts organisations was organised in Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. The Tate director's statement was made following that gathering. Eliasson had also been at Tate Modern in December 2018 to unveil the latest iteration of the Project Ice Watch, which featured blocks of sea ice pulled from the waters close to Greenland, installed on the landscape outside Tate Modern and the headquarters of the sponsor Bloomberg in the City of London, and slowly melting away. The event was staged just as world leaders were gathering to discuss the climate crisis in Katowice in Poland. I spoke to Eliasson over the phone on the 6th of December 2018 about the project and his climate crisis activism. Olafur, you've staged this work twice before. Can you tell me about those formats that you've displayed it in in the past and also what kind of effect it had, how how the audience reacted? Yes, absolutely. First time we did Ice Watch was in Copenhagen when the so-called IPCC board released the paper or the document based on which the Paris summit, the COP21 took place. So, so, the, so the scientific report with all the data, all the sort of science and work and evaluations and gathering of, uh, of weather, you know, analytical material, that report is essentially what created the foundation on which the COPs, the, the UN's body for monitoring the climate and recommending solutions, a meeting, right? So the first time a real serious version of this paper the, was released was in Copenhagen. All the scientists was there. And I said, we need to make that report tangible. This is probably the most important document since, I don't know, since the Bible or something, right? And in that sense, I called the mayor's office in Copenhagen. I found philanthropic support. And we, we on the street, within very short time, showed a smaller or the first version of IceWatch. And suddenly, I think the, the sort of the broader public became aware, my God, all these UN scientists are in town and they are, they are, you know, they're releasing this document. They're talking about the data. And for me as an artist, it was very important to say, well, data stays up in our head. Well, we see data in the paper, but emotional change, I mean, to, to actually react on data, you need, you need to make data explicit so that we can touch it or we can feel it. So I said, okay, the way, the, why don't we bring the, the inland ice, the glacier ice from Greenland and just put it on the street and people can walk over to it and touch it and you know, look at it. And, and what obviously happens is that it's very touching. I mean, when you look at the ice, it's very beautiful. It's bluish, clear. It has lots of small bubbles. And as the ice melts, the bubbles, the, the bubbles they crack like little pop or popcorn. 
So there is, there's a little, not so loud, but there's a little concert of popping. And, and what it is, of course, a glacier has a lot of pressure. I mean, it's so heavy, so the bubbles are under pressure, right? So once the ice melts, suddenly you hear like pop. And that's because that little bubble has a lot more pressure than the outside and, 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 and so on. So it's very interesting that, that it is very physical and active for a lot of senses. In Copenhagen, I met then, you know, the, the people who were preparing from, uh, for the Paris summit, the, 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 French, the famous French ambassador to Copenhagen at the time, Francois Semery, the, the French foreign minister came to Copenhagen. He heard about it. He went to Greenland and, and somehow the UN got hold of the idea of doing the ice what's in Paris then. And interestingly, the COP21 in, in Paris, the famous one where, where, you know, where there was the agree on maximum two degrees increase uh, in, in temperature and, and the recommended was actually one and a half degree, which was proposed by the small island states, right? So, but, but that was based on the scientific document from Denmark and together with the UN and the mayor's office, the amazing Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, uh, we did it on the streets despite the fact that two weeks earlier there had been the terror attacks. So I really want to give credit to the sort of the Paris sort of sense of um, uh, not changing this, the, this sort of public agenda. Uh, uh, that was actually quite impressive because obviously everybody was traumatized and it's not like once you have a terror attack, it's not like that the climate concern, which is so abstract altogether, is the main thing. But but credit for the to the friends for actually pulling through anyway, right? Really in the most the most amazing way. The the, the latest iteration is in connection with the Katowice um, meeting of all these world leaders. Did you consider showing it there, or was it always? Did you always feel that London was more appropriate? So now there is the there is the last version or the one version we are doing right now, right? And the the thing is, I spoke to the UN again. The, the Katowice meeting is, a, is about the application or the, the ratification of what was agreed on in Paris. Obviously, they're going to also discuss the fact that the recommendations is now a, a, a bit lower. Now, one and a half degrees seems to be the maximum. But, but essentially, the, the, the Polish COP is, is a, I wouldn't call it more practical, but it is about, well, what are we actually doing? And obviously, the truth is not enough. So I, I then started calling around and said, listen, could we do the ice watch again? Isn't it, isn't it you know, as urgent now? And I was actually interested in, again, not to be at the scientist side, but to be at a very public side. And I have a, a lovely collaboration with Bloomberg Philanthropy. They have been supporting my Little Sun solar uh, project for a long time. And I called the people at Bloomberg who has just opened this quite amazing and very sustainable building in London. I, I was funded then from Bloomberg and I found a site in London uh, by the Tate where obviously I have a relationship. I worked with them so often before. Yes. So, so now for Katowice, we are trying to bring about the same thing. How does it actually feel to put your hand on the eyes and feel on your skin? What on earth are they talking about in Katowice? The thing it seems to me that, that this work does very cleverly is it works with the idea of time in all sorts of ways and, and, and visualises the complexity of time that the discussions around climate encapsulate. Can you say something about that? Yeah, well, I think that the fact that the ice 
is so compelling to look at. What, one thing which is, of course, amazing is that you look at something which is 20,000 years old, maybe 25 or 15,000 years old. You, you're looking at old, old glacier ice. The ice, um, how should I say it? The ice is melting away in front of your eyes. And there is suddenly this notion of, oh my God, this old, oh, like 20,000 years, and it's going to be gone in a week in yes. front in, here in London, right? So there's something really quite explicit about the way that this is, oh no, this amazing ice, how, how, let's, let's do something to protect it or some, somehow. And, and in that sense, um, because obviously the, the, the time element, which is so difficult with the whole sustainable discussion of the climate discussion, is that it is, a, it is, you know, it's sort of outside of our lifespan horizon. We know that risks and worrying, that my, my worry about the climate is like kind of after I die. So, so it's always, I think it's always, when you have a climate discussion, it's always great to have a child in the room or grandchild in the room. Do you know what I mean? So yes. to, to make explicit the time that is not tangible, right? The time that is outside of our immediate concern. And, and in that sense, um, this idea of the 25,000 year, which is so abstract anyway, I mean, in that sense, there is, I think, some potential in, we need to understand when talking about the planet and sustainability, we need to be less egoistic and see beyond our lifespan and our time. And even though this is so, how should I say, it's like, I wouldn't call it abstract, but it, this is like a thought. We need to make it physical. I mean, the, the thing about about that physicality is that it, it, it impresses upon people the actual urgency. Because as you say, there is this sort of idea of it being beyond our lifetime. But certainly in the IPCC's most recent report, it's, they make it very clear that there is this 12-year window that we have where if humankind does enough, we can stop it tipping over into the two degrees warming and keep it at 1.5 which everybody accepts that is going to happen um so you in a way again you, you know your your work visualizes that urgency doesn't it yeah i will i mean i, I think it's for me for me my work is about the relationship between individual opportunity what can we do as individuals and the more systemic sort of changes which are needed too we need you know, the politicians, the public sector to, to take responsibility and to introduce systemic changes, right? We, 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 we need the private sector to take upon the sustainable goals and actually make commitments and, and stick to them. But, but, but these larger systemic things, which is, of course, what UN is also sort of focusing on in terms of recommending nation, nation states of what, what can they actually do as a state or as a, as a country. But we, the civic sector, the civic society we need to take individual stands and individual sort of micro changes or nano changes or, and and in that sense i think the pro, the idea with the the eyes in that sense is just to make tangible or make in a very straightforward way well 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 what on earth is going on right or what is going on with the earth for that matter and i'm of course my art in a sense, has always been about this this notion of well, my personal and and my critical experience of reality or of the world or of my context. What what does that mean to me, and how can I change that? Do I am I a consumer of the world, or am I a co-producer? Am I a co-author of the world? And to sort of shift the notion to say that you are not pacified, you're not you're not nothing, you are 
actually important. You have agency. You can do things. You can vote. You can actually influence also the systemic changes. So in that sense, I'm, I'm very curious about, and, and I understand it's complex, right? But I'm very curious about, can we make people into change agents and drive the civic society into a, civ, a, 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 a systemic force? We should not vote for the politicians who simply are mismanaging our future, right? So that's a systemic individual relationship. But of course, we need movement on the kind of communal, the local, the civic level. We, we need action on the floor. Do you feel the work's become more important since you first staged it in the sense that when you first did it, um, President Obama was in power in the United States, for instance, and he was somebody who recognised climate change, uh, the importance of climate change. Um, but obviously, since we've had all these populist um, uh, governments coming into power, and many of them are antagonistic to climate change action. So therefore, do you think this this work becomes all the more important because of that? Yeah, I mean, that would be the obvious thing to say that we need more civic courage we need more people who actually take a stand and and you know it's it's honorable to actually become an activist and stop what you disagree with even physically quite literally i think it's honorable to 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 sort of rise up against the people who are in fact ruining your grandchildren's lives or your children's lives mm -hmm. but but i also think that it's important to notice that you know maybe the, the 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 how should I say maybe the the exploitive nature of Trump has actually promoted a greater climate consciousness in America with a stronger civic movement, because frankly speaking, yes, I mean as as much as we liked Obama and 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 the world at the time, but it's not like he did a lot for the climate. I mean we shouldn't forget that he it, it was not like I mean he was sort of climate conscious, yes, but it's not like he was in any way radical. No. Not, not not at all, not radical at all. And and in that sense, the urgency has been around for a while. And we see very few leaders sort of uh, testing their voters' confidence. Right? We, we have small uh, island states who are doing radical things, right? like the small islands. And luckily, they are in Katowice too. I mean, we see the Fiji Islands are buying land in other countries to move whole communities within our lifetime. So so we see small island states being much more radical in their in their sort of approach. And we see the people who are forced into questions about climate justice, right? The sub-Saharan countries, for instance, where you are likely to have a much greater climate impact with them having no, re they had no, uh, you know, stake in creating the climate uh, problems, right? So, yes. and, and, and suddenly they are becoming very active because they are like, and, and this, of course, is what's going on in Katsu, which is you have the, the, the well-off states and then you have the vulnerable states. Uh, and the vulnerable states saying, well, you have to pay for our adjustment to the climate. So I guess this is the kind of main topic, actually. But and, and suddenly we, you know, civic society need to come up with solutions that, that we think is important. That I just heard actually from the amazing Mary Robinson, the former Prime Minister of Ireland, um, who came to my studio last visit promoting her book on climate justice. I just heard in the discussion with her that some people are actually suggesting that if you, because of the climate, become a climate refugee, right? And that could be a lot of people. 
you are automatically given a passport to one of the climate perpetrators. So let's say that Ethiopia, for instance, if that's 90 million people, right? Let's say Ethiopia, a part of Ethiopia, this the whole sort of eastern part, which is very, very drought endangered. If that really goes into a climate, this let's say that there's 30 million, 40 million people simply uh, they they could be climate refugees. And let's say the U the UK, who's been so busy with the Brexit that they have done nothing in particular to publicly discuss the climate, right? Yeah. Because their worry pool is full of Brexit, right? So why don't we give the 30, 40 million people from the climate, potential climate refugees from Ethiopia, why don't we give them a British passport? Isn't that just fair to say that the countries that created the problem, they need to host the people who don't know where to go? And instead, uh, now we're forcing them into refugee camps. And, you know, what do what know I? So in, I, I love this idea. It's a very famous, there was the, I think it was called the Nansen Passport, 1920, when, you know, when, you know, it was the very, at the very beginning of you. And this idea of, you know, you get a passport as a refugee and you can travel to any country you want to, right? Yes. But so, so, I, so I think people totally underestimate the gravity of the situation. And in that sense, you know, Katowice, I'm so curious to see what's going on. But the truth is, um, we, the, the scale of what we are facing, it's, it's a lot more uh, robust. You, your work right from the start has addressed climate change, hasn't it? I mean, you did the Glacier series in 1999, for instance, that series of photographs. So this has been at the, absolutely at the core of your work right since the start. Yeah, I've been interested in nature. And I've been interested in for, for a long time in the so-called relationship between culture and nature, or the man and nature, or woman, woman of course, and, and the so-called Anthropocene. So the sort of experiential, should I say, context of, or, or the experiential conditions. What, what does it mean to actually not experience nature, but experience yourself as being a part of the nature? The Anthropocene, right? The consequences of your presence and the sense of presence simply. And Iceland was always a you know, that was my toolbox, so to speak. The, I was I, I, being from there inspired me, and so on and so forth. I did the weather project, but frankly speaking, the weather project was both about drawing attention to the ephemeral within the city, right? The weather, for instance, but it was also to sensitize people to say, well, maybe the ephemera and the collective, and and, and you know, when I say the ephemera, I mean our sense of nature, the sense of the the atmosphere. And the collective needs to be seen connected. You know, the shared experience of nature in our city. It's so, and, and so I, it would be a little unfair to say that I've addressed, addressed climate you know, specifically throughout my, I've addressed questions about ecology and nature and experience. And ob- obviously the climate, evolving climate uh, debate has that as, at its very heart. And I was interested by something that you said about the weather project, which was that at the time, the discussions around that work were plural and climate was one of them, but, but there were lots of other things discussed. But, but the, the further we get away from that work, the more and more it's discussed in terms of climate change. Yeah, it's, um, I, ge- I guess maybe there was a very deep subconscious notion of uh, emerging field, but not yet verbalized field, but emotionally it had resonance with people. So when I said the weather project, I think there was a sense that people recognized 
to address the weather as a space of importance, maybe not urgency, but at, at, of relevance, actually gave language to something that had not yet been fully verbalized. So there was, I mean, in, 19, in 2003, there was that increasing sense of things changing. I mean, while preparing the weather project during the summer, and I was also doing the catalog for, for, for the show, of course, the Sun, which is funny, the, 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 the worst paper in Britain called The Sun, right? <laughs> the Sun had an amazing cover, which is just said the hottest day in history. And, and you know, to, for The Sun to put that on the cover, I think just reflects the fact that people were paying attention more and more to something is a bit odd in 2003, right? Right. Of course, it's, fu it's funny. It's called The Sun. And then it says the hottest day in history. And, <laughs> and, so, and, and I was doing the weather projects. So I put that cover in the catalog of the show. And I was making reference to the fact that we need to be, we, we need to challenge our numbness. Uh, are we, have we become numb? I mean, to each other, to to our moral compasses, to activism, to ha have we lost it somehow, right? Have we just become consumers, dull, uh, and, and funny enough? I mean, 2003, it sounds like yesterday, right? But there was no Instagram. There was there was no, I mean, I, I guess there was Facebook, right? But, but there was no social media. Isn't it the wildest thing? And have they enabled us to become critical, to become activists, to take a, a moral stand, to become you know, pro progressive? No, they are not. It's just so funny. We always think the internet is like an amplifier of, of, of democracy. I mean, I don't see that, even though I'm an active social media participant. But so with regards to, you know, where, where do, how do people look back at that work today? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, um, I'm very happy people still remember it. And I, I'm proud to have done it and humble for the attention that it got. But, but, but I think a great work of art is great because it, it keeps maintaining a relevant position in the contemporary discussion. So when we talk about the weather project, we actually talk about today. I don't think people talk about back then, right? Yeah. I think that's an that's an important sort of um, distinction because talking about the past is kind of like an escapism. Oh, back then all museums were much better than they are now. But to talk about, I mean, to go in and see a great work of a of historic art somewhere, we look at it today. So it's, I think it's more the question of what does the past offer the presence rather than, than the opposite. And before you go, I can't not ask you about the fact that you are returning to Tate Modern next July with a big survey show. Will climate change feature in that show? The survey show at the Tate next summer um, will have a, a, a kind of substantial overview of my work throughout 20 years. So it's a very, very exciting thing for me. And uh, as I'm actually working on it now, I can see that certain themes have been continuous. The relationship we have to nature, how we, how we define nature has been at the heart of my work throughout the whole thing. So, so that will be in the show. And in that, there is that whole relationship. Well, how do we then act upon the na nature or the world, right? The, what, what is atmosphere? So that's in the show too. So on the other side, I also have to say, well, the way that I like to work with art is that I offer the viewer or the visitor to my show to reflect upon their own position within the, within the context of the work they're looking at. So do they or do I succeed offering the people 
the feeling that the artwork is actually looking back at them, or the artwork, for that matter, is listening to their stories. So somebody looks, I hope, at my art and say, oh, this is, this is the work that is expressing something on my behalf and not on my expense, right? And, 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 and for me, if somebody who's sort of busy finding out what is going on with the climate, that is the moment where that work says, well, I think the climate is the topic here. And the person says, yes, this is a work about the climate. But, but I also think on, as me, for me as an artist, I need to be careful to tell people what they think because that's me telling people they're not smart. I need to tell people, you are smart, your idea is great. I don't have to say what you should think about. You think, and I think a great work of art actually listens to you and you leave the museum saying, well, somebody listened to me. I must be good enough. I am actually an activist. Olafur, that's a good point to end our discussion. Thank you so much for talking to me. Excellent. Thank you also, Ben. Good luck with it. You can read and see much more about Icewatch in Olafur Eliasson's exhibition In Real Life, which is at Tate Modern until the 6th of January. Eliasson's conversation with Mary Robinson, the former Irish president and the writer of the book Climate Justice, is in the show's catalogue, which is published by Tate and costs £19.99 or $24.99. Now, at the beginning of May 2019, I went to Venice to interview various artists at the Biennale. One of them was Justin Bryce Guerrilla, whose work has consistently drawn attention to the climate emergency. His work Extinction features in the Biennale in an exhibition called Artists Need to Create on the Same Scale that Society Has the Capacity to Destroy. The show is in a church deep in the Canareggio district of Venice, but I spoke to Guerrilla in the Giardini, where many of the national pavilions are located, in the opening days of the Biennale. And note, I got one thing very wrong at the end of this conversation. There was, in fact, a lot of climate crisis theme work in Venice, including the work for the Lithuania pavilion that won the Golden Lion. But Justin's response is well worth hearing. Here's the interview. So I'm now standing in the uh, Biennale's Giardini area with Justin Bryce Guerrilla, and we're going to talk about his contribution to this show about climate change. Justin, you've made a hell of a lot of work about this subject and about the Anthropocene. Tell me about why you have such a powerful conviction in this, in this subject. You know, I, I think responding to the ecological crisis is probably the moral imperative of our time. So I think it's, it's something that it's just, it has to be done, it has to be addressed there's no way to escape the issues that we're we're seeing and um, that are playing out around the world. And in in terms of this show, it's a very simple, succinct work that you're presenting. Tell us more about it. Yeah, well, you know, the connection of fossil fuels to the ecological crisis, to climate change, global warming, uh, is is very direct. Um, one day I was in the studio and I was starting to play around with this Exxon logo and I realized, oh, Exxon, if you just spread the letters out, you can make actually spells out extinction. Um, so I started playing with that and then ended up creating a neon, a neon work that, uh, it's, it's very direct, obviously, it's very blunt. But at the same time, you know, these issues need to be, um, they need to be quite direct. I'm trying to broadly raise the public consciousness on these issues and so the work has to be very accessible it has to be something that's very direct very easy to get you don't have to have an art history degree to understand what it is that that's that's 
that you're seeing and experiencing. So that's kind of where this where this project came out of. Um, in, in London recently, you presented a work called Reduce Speed Now, and one of it, it consisted of a series of signs like motorway signs with urgent messages, with poetry, with messages from Greta Thunberg, for instance. One of those signs had a list of species that were becoming extinct, and this seems to me extraordinary timing given that we've just had a UN report about the human effect on wildlife. Were you conscious of that report coming out, or was it just a, it's just something you're concerned about anyway? You know, what, what, what is art about? You know, art is about challenging our moral, uh, you know, our moral assumptions, right? Our ethical assumptions. And so when we talk about, you know, human, the human connection to climate change, you know, we have to look at uh, what are our impacts, right? And... At the end of the day, our impacts all boil down to one thing. And I learned this talking to Timothy Morton, the philosopher. Tim and I have had these conversations for the last couple of years. And it, it all boils down to one thing. It all boils down to this notion of extinction, whether we go extinct or the, all the species around us go extinct. So this has been in the back of my mind for a long time. Um, and it, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. And then the UN report, I learned about it coming out last week, you know, about a just a, a few days before it came out. Um, so the timing was un, rather uncanny. Um, and as you know, the report says that there are about a million species that are, uh, that are essentially on track to go extinct over the next several decades because of our impacts, right? So this is like, this is insane. This is like, this number, this number is just mind-boggling. Um, so the timing just happened to be very good. Um, but at the core, the core of all the work I'm, I've been making for, you know, for over a decade now, has been uh, has been addressing these these issues. So, there's a really interesting shift that you made in your career, which I think speaks to the power of art, and that's that you were a, essentially a reportage photographer, right? And you made this shift into art. Can you explain why? Because in a way, it seems counterintuitive. Well, I, I love photography. You know, it's this very direct. Uh, medium, but I found that a lot of the ideas that I was um, starting to, to to have and, and, and opinions I was starting to have from all my travels and, and the things I was learning out in, in out in the field, right? Because all my work really is a product of my research in the field, um, and I started realizing, wow, you know, a lot of these things that I want to express, I couldn't express through a photograph. They had to be more. They had to be more nuanced. There had to be more complexity to them, and that's when I realized I needed to start playing with materials and processes and scale and things like that, which didn't really exist. You know, we couldn't really do in photography. So that's how I started ending up doing all these other projects that dealt with you know now neon signs, but the highway signs that, you know from Somerset House that we just did, uh, which started about a year ago uh, back in the states, and then. Um, making large-scale paintings and all these other things. So it's really about trying to figure out a more complex, um, a, a more complex uh, language to express uh, this very, very complex issue. The Anthropocene is a very, very complex thing, and it cannot just photograph. It can't just tell the story, unfortunately. It's interesting because we're in Venice at the moment, and, and actually there are hundreds and hundreds of exhibitions and works of art here. And yet, uh, Venice is absolutely at the front line of climate change. With the rise of sea level, Venice will be underwater soon. And 
I'm not sure it feels like there's much art which seems to be conveying this urgent message in this place. It seems almost dreamlike. You know, I haven't been around to see the... I just arrived, so I haven't seen any of the, the other work yet. Um, when we did check into the... Uh, when I checked into my, my room, the host said to me, by the way, if the water comes up into the apartment call me so we can find another apartment for you and then i saw seaweed right outside my doorstep yesterday and i was like okay we're really we're really fucked um and so and i'm part i'm actually a a quarter venetian so for me this is like a personal a little bit of a personal thing um but this is a major major issue here uh and this is one of the ground zeros for climate change um venice is not only sinking but the sea level is rising and so it's kind of a double whammy uh for for the locals here but i think art really needs to um needs to step up and address these things we we're in a very very critical uh zone right now when we talk not only about species, but our own human, the human species and, and, and the impacts that we are going to suffer. Um, and so I think it's, it's absolutely urgent to be addressing these issues and for artists to engage with these issues because we're, we're like the last resort. We're like the, you know, there's no religion anymore. It's like, it's art. It's, it, art needs to be the uh, medium that conveys to society you know, and help the, help society understand uh, their role in, in the world. And um, so, I mean, artists really need to step up to this uh, and address this issue. Justin, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Ben. You can see the exhibition Artists Need to Create on the same scale that society has the capacity to destroy at the Church of the Penitenti in Venice until the 24th of November. A related show in which Justin's work also features is at the Colby Museum of Art at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, until the 5th of January. Gorilla's work We Are the Asteroid 3 is at the Buffalo Bayou Sculpture Park in Houston, Texas, and you can hear him deliver lectures this November at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls and at the Pratt Institute in New York. Now, in the December 2018 issue of the art newspaper, we covered at length a report in the scientific journal Nature, which showed the potential impact of sea level rise on heritage in Europe, and particularly around the Mediterranean. We drew attention to the lack of preparedness for it among those tasked with protecting those sites. Anna Summers-Cox, the founder of the art newspaper, came to our London studio in December 2018 to discuss what she discovered. Anna, the report in the art newspaper is based on new research which was published in the scientific journal Nature. Can you explain more about that research? Uh, This team of scientists at Kiel University in Germany decided to look at um, the World Heritage Sites. Those are the sites decreed to be particularly important by UNESCO around the Mediterranean that were either at 10 metres or below um, in relationship to sea level to see what would happen to them with the projected levels of sea level rise by the end of this century. And what they came up with was pretty depressing. So what did they come up with? Well, um, they modelled it. Modelling, by the way, means projecting, sort of using mathematics, a lot of data put together. Um, And um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this huge supranational organisation that sifts 
research into climate change um, has a number of scenarios. So the first scenario, which is if we are all very, very good and we all stop burning fossil fuels um, and uh, in the next 12 years, uh, we might keep uh, the rise in temperature to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Well, then the rise in the water level in the Mediterranean will be about 36 centimetres. But the fourth scenario, which is the one if we are completely out of control and um, the ice caps uh, at the poles continue to melt and melt faster than melting now, um, you know, the, all bets are off and you're getting into sea level rise of 1.5 metres, which means that um, these 49 sites around the Mediterranean, which are nearly all rather ancient cities, and obviously in the old days people built their cities where transport was good, so they built them on the sea, um, a very large number of them are basically had it. And, um, for example, Venice has completely had it. So, so let's talk about what which places we're talking about here, because they're some of the biggest uh, tourist destinations in Europe and around the Mediterranean, aren't they? Yes. Um, there's Venice, there is Genoa, there is Istanbul, um, there's Carthage, the ancient city of Carthage from which Hannibal came. Uh, there's Ravenna, the great Byzantine town with one, well, I mean, not, uh, it's not a very big town, but it's got fantastic Byzantine mosaics. There is Ferrara, Renaissance city in Italy. Um, a very high percentage, 19 of these sites are in Italy. The next highest uh, number is down the Dalmatian coast, Yugoslavia, what used to be Yugoslavia, um, then Greece. Um, but, um, and it isn't just the, the actual World Heritage Sites, it's the territory around them. So a lot of other places will also um, have great problems. So um, this isn't something that's been talked about so far. We've been talking about, you know, um, damage to crops, you know, migration and so on. But actually a major part of world's history is going to be attacked by sea level rise. Now, in, in the report in the art newspaper... What you've done is you've contacted a number of these organisations, these World Heritage Sites, and you have asked them how prepared they are for climate change and its effects. What sort of responses did you get? Most people had never heard of this report. Um, a small number of sites said they realised they had a big problem. Ferrara, for example, um, says that they're working with uh, the European Union and they've got a big collaboration going. Um, Venice, um, the, the person responsible for the environment for the town council, refused to speak to me, although I knew from his secretary that he'd actually read the report. And the reason he didn't want to speak to me was because he knows damn well that the mobile barriers that are being installed, which are 10 years late, but we hope will be working from 2020, actually will be useless by the time we get to the end of the century because they would have to be up permanently to protect the city from sea level rise, at which point the lagoon would turn into a stinking swamp. Um, so that, that's why he wouldn't want to speak to me. Uh, Istanbul, they said, were worried about earthquakes, but we're not thinking about um, water at the moment. Pompeii, um, the, um, the, the city covered by lava south of Naples, uh, said, uh, oh, well, 100 years off. Um, we can't think about that far ahead. It's, it, exactly. I mean, if you read this report, and it is, I'm afraid to say, quite depressing, it really reflects the complacency that we're seeing everywhere about climate change in the sense that, um, uh, well, a great example is that the day that 
the IPCC announced this 12-year window that we've got in order to make radical changes to prevent global warming reaching two degrees. That, that same day, six British newspapers had reports about two people on a reality television show having, sharing a kiss on their front pages and no mention of this catastrophic news. There is a widespread complacency and apathy about climate change that it seems to me is in, almost impossible to... to um, engage people in in changing is is that your perception about um based on the responses that people gave to to the inquiries that you made yes i mean i i dare say most of the people we talked to actually do believe in climate change but they hadn't actually connected up with anything that would affect them and most people look to the ends of their lives and not beyond that. And some countries do that more than others. For example, the Thames barrier um, uh, is a wonderful example of people planning well ahead because the Thames barrier, which is having to be raised more and more frequently, um, they're projecting that it will carry on defending London from being flooded until 2070. And they now have a plan for what's going to happen afterwards. But that is exceptional. Uh, and quite a lot of these places around um, the Mediterranean are in countries where people don't plan beyond the following week. I mean, it always makes me think of the famous cartoon in the New Yorker, which has a man falling off the Empire State Building, and he's whizzing past the 36th floor with a big smile on his face, and he's saying, so far, so good. <laughs> um, the, the IPCC obviously are targeting um, uh, individual people and their behaviour, but obviously it takes it, it's going to take governments and uh, corporations most to make the changes that will that will affect this issue. Um, do you think cultural lobbying about culture will in any way affect the way that governments respond to this situation? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, that's why we published we devoted three pa- whole pages of the art newspaper to this. But um, I think it's going to need some major catastrophe. I mean, I think New York is going to have to be very severely flooded or, you know, some something where where our lives are changed in their sort of essence um, for people to get together. Then it, it will need, you know, the whole European Union to act, for example. And uh, we've got to wait for Trump to be... Um, to be Whatever, whatever's going to happen to Trump. I mean, we've got, Trump is a, is a major, major obstacle and a, a really very serious, um, dam- very, very seriously damaging to the world's future. That's right. So Trump has said that he is pulling out of the Paris Accords, that he was pulling the US out of the Paris Accords, which is this massive supranational um, agreement that was made several years ago. Uh, and uh, and other nations appear to have appear to say that they would compensate for the US, but still the US's um, lack of action in this area is the biggest factor, isn't it? Yes, and and not setting the right example, um, and 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 allowing people in whose interest is uh, not to believe in climate change to say, oh well, you know, if the president of the United States thinks that, that's okay. If we could turn to Venice, and this is a subject you have a special interest in because you were once chair of Venice in Peril. Um, there were recent floods in Venice that it seems to me were enormously alarming. How much are they related to climate change and how much are they related to other things? Um, they are related to climate change insofar as um, uh, climate change leads to weirder and stronger weather. Um, they, they happen because of a strong wind blowing up the Adriatic, which is a rather narrow uh, strip of water, pushing the water up towards Venice, low pressure systems, lots of rain. And um, 
uh, that creates what's called a storm surge. And we'll be seeing lots more storm surges everywhere as a consequence of climate change. So you get two things happening simultaneously. You get acute events, which are storm surges, and you have the chronic event, i.e. the slow rising of the water levels. And what uh, the Keele University study um, has done is it has mapped what will happen if you get a storm surge of the kind that uh, is the average for that place coinciding with the projected rise in the water level. Obviously, people are aware that you get this thing called Aqua Alta in in Venice. This happens periodically. But was what happened in October, I think it was, of this year, significantly worse than than a sort of of regular events where, where the water rises? There, the, I think the last one that was as bad as that was about 10 years ago. But the point is that any aqua alta comes into St. Mark's Square because it's the lowest lying part of town and it comes into the Basilica, which is a thousand years old, has the most wonderful inlaid floors and it gets sucked up into the brickwork, which is behind the marble panels on the on the walls and is, is beginning to affect the mosaics, which are, you know, 900 years old above. These wonderful mosaics are beginning to fall off because the damp is attacking them. And we all assume that, you know, it's all been going on for so long, it'll all be okay, you know. But things reach a tipping point when suddenly things aren't okay anymore. And we are reaching the tipping point with building the housing stock in Venice already, you know, buildings being attacked. And the tipping point will be affecting all the various towns that have been mentioned in this report in different ways. But it will all be immensely expensive to try and compensate for. Um, Obviously, the thing that makes Venice so special is its exceptional nature but but can venice not be used actually as a sort of an exemplar of what might happen to these other heritage sites can can the very clear effects of uh, venice's situation be used as an argument for uh, transforming these places attitude to uh, sea level rise. Yes, it certainly can. And there are plenty of scientists working in Venice. In fact, there's more been written about Venice and all its various problems, I think, than any other town around the Mediterranean. Um, it's a question of getting people to work together. But there are two things that have to happen. The scientists have to work together. But at certain, some point, you have to get the authorities to take what the scientists are saying seriously. That is the key missing link at the moment. And what about our listeners? What can they do, do you think, in order to draw this to to authorities' attention? Are there actions that can be taken by people listening to this? I think uh, if you're in one of the towns that's mentioned, one of these Mediterranean towns, you know, find out, find out who your town councillor is for the environment, uh, get involved, uh, you know, write articles if you're journalists. Awareness is manifest in lots of different ways. Um, you know, act. Okay, Anna, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this. Thank you for giving me an opportunity. You can read more about this story and much more on this subject at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. Click on Search or the magnifying glass symbol and search Climate Change. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And you can subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them and please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and we're also on Instagram and Facebook, of course. 
The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David does the editing. We'll be back with another Top of the Pods next week. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.